put on the uniform and found myself. I served my country and fell in love with me. Travel the world being all I could be. God showed me here is where I'd be. Well, hello, and thank you for listening to Women Veterans Social Justice Network's podcast here on Heroes Media Group. I'm your host, Bridgette McCoy, and the CEO and founder. I have the wonderful opportunity to have Paula Morgan here. She's a WAM Project Community Outreach Ambassador and a U.S. Army Aviation Veteran and the wife of a, a U.S. Army Aviation Veteran, and she's going to Um, be talking with us a little bit today about her military experience, her transition, and the philanthropy work that she's doing now in the community. Thank you so much, Paula, for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. I am always amazed by how interconnected er everyone is on the Internet. The challenge is most people don't perceive as being like one or two degrees away from various people in the community doing great things. And so fortunately, one of our mutual friends connected us so that we could even have this conversation. Uh, And so I'm very thrilled to get the opportunity to have a recorded discussion with you here today. Yes, ma'am. I am as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. So, tell, give us, talk to us about your, you know, your military experience. I'd love to know why you went in the military because most of our women veterans have all kinds of reasons why they went in. Um, and so, love to hear your your narrative on that. So, I grew up on a farm in a small community, and at the time I was um, in school exploring the possibilities of what was going to happen after I graduated from high school. And I knew that I did not want to go into farming as an as an industry. I just didn't have an interest in it. It was being taken over by corporate America. And so a lot of small business farmers were going out of business. We had this high school guidance counselor have brought in some recruiters from the military And they all sat there and talked about how great that the military was, and that was kind of what prompted me to start thinking about, hmm, I wonder. And then they brought up the idea that the GI Bill and how it was being used to help educate you so that you could get a better career. So that was really the tipping point for me was the idea of going into the National Guard and I um, I spoke of it briefly with my grandmother, and she had a brother who was my great uncle who was active duty or had served in the service. And, of course, this captured my interest. So she would, you know, speak very highly of him. She had a picture, and, and he, he got to travel to many different places. And I thought, wow. You know, this is a great opportunity for me to investigate. So as I began to explore it, I really felt that that was, that was the direction that I wanted to go. So I went through the testing and I signed the paperwork on my 18th birthday and left for basic training a month later. I feel like many of our, uh, women veterans kind of did that either like myself went through the uh, delayed entry or 
like right after high school was like, yeah, I'm going in the military. Uh, yeah. and so, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very interesting to me. What was it like, of course, money to go to school or the opportunity to train. I mean, but you can get those types of things at a job training program at a community college, right? Talk more about the tangible thing that drew you to the military being the choice and not, you know, some, you know, vocational training program. Um, sure. In your community. Well, it was honestly um, on a, on a personal level. I really love the idea of the National Guard in the sense that they were intended at that time in in um, 1987. The purpose of the National Guard was really to handle domestic disasters. So if there was um, a major fire somewhere, you might be called out uh, to support the first responders and individuals who would be called to that particular situation. So for me, I really love the idea that it was, at least at that time, the National Guard was not being called on so much to go overseas. And so from the perspective of the, the idea of being able to help people on the domestic side or with, at least within the um, within America, if there was a, a, um, a disaster, then you were called to go. And I love that idea of being able to help other people in that way. My job in the National Guard was a signal corps. So the whole purpose behind that is that you would set up operations to help people to communicate, you know, on the off chance that maybe your phone lines were knocked out. You know, back then, we didn't have cell phones so much. It was all still very much hardwired. Um, yep. Just starting to get into the cable. Yeah, just starting to get into the cable part of it. That was really the core of why I decided to to take that step. Well, that makes sense. Uh, a lot of women have those experience that that kind of perspective um, is it's always interesting to me. Veterans in general are always are, are like focused on service. We mm-hmm. want to serve, you know, and so much of what, why we go in is about service. Uh, and sometimes we don't know specifically what that's going to look like, but we have an idea. And there's either a service to country or service to your community or service within a the spectrum of the job field. But at, at the core, um, you know, just one of those those core values, I, I seem to see just a, a, a thread from beginning to end of people who want to serve. And so um, it's interesting that 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 thread shows up every every time we have uh, one of these podcasts. And so I wanted to kind of switch it because you um, were both, you were dual mer- uh, military, your spouse and yourself. Talk a little bit about that uh, because that can be a challenge, um, being able to manage all the moving pieces of being in service and having a, a, another, your, your spouse to be in the service. What was that like for you? So uh, the story there is that after after the Gulf War broke out, 
my perspective about service really changed from the idea of knowing my National Guard unit was 24 hours from being called to go overseas. Mm. And that was a wake-up call for me. I, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, okay? Um, this is a totally different it's like a different ball game now. And so uh, that was when I made the decision that, you know, I really truly loved what I was doing in the National Guard, and I wanted to take it to the next level. And the next level for me was to go active duty. And um, so I went back, and I was required to retake the ASVAB test, and I took the ASVAB test again, and I scored well enough that I could consider a different field. And so aviation came up, and I'm like, oh, wow. I said, I've always dreamed about, you know, being in aviation. And sure, it was helicopters, but, you know, um, <laughs> I I loved um, the idea of knowing that, that I could not only be serving people, but working or serving our nation, but also working in an environment that I absolutely um, dreamed of working in. From the time that I was about five years old, I had an uncle took me up in his private plane, and it was awesome. I just loved it. I was five years old, and I'll never forget it. Um, but uh, during the course of that, I went back to training again, and I was deployed to South Korea. And mm. in that process, I met um, my husband, who was a soldier. At that time, we didn't know that we were going to get married, uh, you know, of course, we were both enlisted, so we didn't have any issues or concerns with um, fraternization or anything like that. But we were both in the same unit, and so it wasn't Ooh. like the yeah. So it wasn't the <laughs> ideal situation uh, for us to proceed with um, with marriage at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, like most people will do, um, they'll he was scheduled to come back stateside, and we kind of lost touch. And But the aviation world is kind of small, so when I finally returned to the States, I crossed paths with an old buddy of mine who was also from South Korea, and and uh, we knew each other very well. He was a A&P mechanic, and... Um, and so, I'm sorry, he was a CH-47 mechanic. And what he did was, um, so these guys, they were all part of the flight crew. And this particular individual, his his first name was Bill, and he had encouraged me to um, to get married to this, uh, to my husband. And so when I crossed paths with him, I said, well, he asked if we ever got married, and I said, well, no, we ended up going our separate ways. And I said, I'm not even sure where he is right now. So uh, I... Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so he, um, he called me, um, Bill called me and said, hey, I got a line on where your husband, or where your... your um, former fiancé is. And I said, really, where is he? Well, he's in Kentucky. Oh. So back in that day, they had, and I don't know if they still have it today, but they had what they call the Audubon line, which is a an, an in-service, or it's within the military. 
So you can yeah. get on the phone and call. So I had enough information to where I called, and the guys that were there remembered me from South Korea. And I said, hey, this is Specialist. Um, that time, my last name was Pines. And um, we served together in South Korea, and I am looking for my husband, <laughs> Chad. And, uh, well, um, they were like, oh, yeah, man. It's like, they, they said, hold on a second. And they went and they got him on the on the phone, and, and the next thing I know, we're talking to each other. So at that time, I was stationed in Fort Hood, and uh, he called me, um, or he was he he had family in in Texas, and so it just so happened that he was on his way to Texas to make a trip to see his mother, and and so we connected, and the rest is history. We went ahead and got married. Uh, we were in different units. That was a very feasible thing for us to do. Um, we had to establish joint domiciles so that we could um, at least be stationed at the same place. Right. And, and yeah. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that, there's always I, the risk. I've never heard of that. I've, I've never heard of that, anything like that, ever, ever, ever. I'm talking about now the joint domicile. I got that part. But the fact that uh-huh. you had... Y'all had dated, knew each other, you were for each other, but still went your own way. And then some person who said, you guys should get married, pops into your life again and says, I'll connect, yeah. reconnect you since you didn't take my, you know, my first word to do this. I'll make sure you get it taken <laughs> care of this time. And then you guys follow through. Yes, we did. That's Amazing. That's an amazing, I mean, that's a whole nother amazing thing. I mean, that's a whole, that's for a whole nother podcast, you know, finding love yes. like that. But, but that's, yeah. you know, it's a whole nother yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Wonderful. So tell yeah. our listeners more. Tell our listeners more. Yeah. So, um, well, we went ahead and, and we proceeded with, um, we had to do a uh, Justice of the Peace wedding in order to establish the joint domicile. And mm-hmm. once we established our joint domicile, we had a, a formal wedding with the church that I was attending at the time. Aww. And Aww. it was very sweet, very special. And um, so we, you know, at that point, um, there, like you said, there's, almost a whole other podcast to share all the working pieces that, that mm-hmm. keeps it going. But I was still on active duty at the time. And um, about, I want to say, it was about four months afterwards that I found out that I was pregnant. And um, this is when my husband and I really had to have a discussion about my future in the military. Oh, there was wow. a lot of things going on. There was um, a major drawdown. At that time, our commander in chief was um, Bill Clinton, and mm. and so um, we really we really had to consider what did we want for our family. Yeah. And so, you know, the the family that we have within our military, we all have that camaraderie spirit. We all become brother and sister warriors. You know, how how do you take that in that and then duplicate that within your own family? And so the way my husband saw that was 
that I needed to be the the um, person who was at home anchoring the family in place while he continued to serve on active duty. And I was, you know, preparing to, you know, give birth to a child. It, and so we still had the support of the military in that sense. The transition was a little different for me because while I did get out of the military, my husband was still active duty. And so I still had that um, coattail to hang on to. And and so it wasn't like I was immediately thrust into a civilian environment. And uh, um, I was very supportive of my husband and his unit. Um, we unfortunately had a, he had a major, there was a major training accident in his unit. And mm. um, there were five individuals who were killed in a helicopter crash. Mm. It was a very difficult time for um for everyone and um you know that's one thing I can say when I was in the in the military personally that there was any aircraft that I ever worked on there were no um training accidents no aircraft ever went down because you know because of the mistake that would have been made from the crew that I worked with we were very thorough and you know we we followed the you know, all the procedures that were in place. And, you know, we have to understand that when we're working on these aircraft that fly in the air, you know, if anything goes wrong, it can result in, you know, fatalities. So we were very um, proficient in what we did. And I'm very proud to say that we never had any um, any training accidents or any fatalities. And the the odd thing about, when he was, um, when we were going through this this whole procedure or this whole process of of you know what happened with this particular aircraft, my husband was in um, PLDC, primary leadership development um, training, and and so this particular aircraft was one that he was working on, and his his whole realization was that if he had not been in PLDC, he may well have been on that aircraft. And considering that everybody that was on that aircraft died was really, um, wow. it was, it was, I, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that, that God was looking out for him. So, and our family. Yes. Yeah. So, wow. So you, I mean, that's such a compelling uh, part of your narrative. I mean, that, I mean, all of this was happening in the process of you, you know, having multiple transitions at the same time, transitioning out of the military, transitioning being a wife, transitioning to being a mother, um, managing your, you know, your husband's career as as staying in the military. Like all of that was happening. Pretty much at the same time for you. Tell me the process of, of 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 how that what that looked like for you emotionally. The transition for you. So since we were newlyweds, all this happened within our first year of marriage. So we we come into to our marriage. We both came from broken homes, and the odds were completely against us surviving our first year of marriage. I felt like our first year of marriage was just. Um, 
the, the teamwork, you know, the soldier's creed, never give up, keep moving forward, um, keep looking for ways to make it work, get your um, support system in place. Right. And, and so, I mean, I did have a hard time securing employment. Well, heck, yeah, I was seven months pregnant. Nobody wants to hire somebody that's seven months pregnant. And but based on our um, based on the system that was in place at the time, if you were going to secure um, the unemployment paycheck, which was promised, you had to be actively looking for work. And not only that, but I when I got out of the military, I had a service connected disability, and they um, kind of gave me the runaround through disability services. Um, gave me the runaround saying, well, the best we can do for you is, is, um, give you accommodations. We can't retrain you because at wow. that particular time, I already had a two year degree, which was in business mm. administration. I got my two year degree from when I was in the National Guard and it was very difficult. They wouldn't pay for anything. They just said, well, this is the best we can do for you. Wow. And so, I mean, it was, in that sense, it was very hard. Um, I didn't know what kind of work I wanted to do. I eventually found work with a temp agency. Mm-hmm. And the temp agency, uh, I did some substitute teaching. And, you know, you're seven months pregnant and you're called at <laughs> 5 o'clock in the morning to go teach um, yes. in a public school system yes. in Texas at that time. So. Yeah, but I will say that that um, I I never felt more appreciated as an individual walking in as a substitute teacher. They were very much needed, and because I was willing, I was called almost every morning. Yeah, wow. and so yeah, and that helped and, financially, uh, I'm sure. So. Well, it helped in it. It helps with your morale more than anything because. You, you, okay, well, I had a purpose, but what's my purpose now? Mm-hmm. And, and so, of course, when your purpose becomes focused on your family and how you're going to train these little guys, these little individuals to become, um, you know, productive citizens of society, well, we yeah. know that a lot of that boils down to what happens in the home and what happens in the, in the classroom. How are they yes. educated? Yes. And and so that kind of became, well, I would say kind of, it did become a lot of my focus. Uh, I did end up securing a position more full-time working for Sally May, which I'm sorry that their, <laughs> their name is. Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I got to be a customer service rep sitting behind the phone. Literally. Honestly. Working for literally. Sally Mae, not not paying back student loans, but literally working for Sally Mae. Yeah. Oh my God. Unfortunately, yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, well, at that time I didn't have any student loan debt. My student loan debt didn't come until later. You kind of alluded to a little bit of what you're doing now, uh, because if uh, if I recognize all of your work. It, we'll we'll have three podcasts, but so we're going to just kind of skim over the top of some of it. <laughs> You're a professor at an educational institution. You also have written some, uh, have some published works, and your your 
also involved in philanthropic work here doing community beyond community service because you're 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 dedicating your time your talent and your uh your financial resources to mm-hmm. um supporting the mission of shifting the trajectory of how people who've experienced sexual trauma in the military are are treated and 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 handled and and supported and all of those things so you can pick any of those topics and kind of talk about it so that you know uh, all of them, because I think all of them are tantamount to everything that, you know, to, to your history. Uh, and we have time, so you can, you can talk about any of them, all of them. So what has happened here in the past few months is, as I have been considering my uh, future in the, in the perspective I've been teaching as an adjunct professor, and... I have a master's degree in human resources development, so one of the key factors is understanding how to best manage your career so that you can continue to have forward mobility. And as we grow older, our um, some of our resources become limited in the sense that, you know, for example, I just discovered the other day that I can't even donate bone marrow anymore because I'm too old. And it's like, wow, you know, <laughs> here's the reality. Yeah, I've never heard of that. What is that about? Yeah, I guess you can't be older than um, 45 if you're going to donate bone marrow. So um, not that I was planning to or anything. It was just something I ran across. And um, so a few months ago, and I, I'm a um, lifetime member of the VFW, and I get their magazine, and I've been reading, and, doing some research, and they were asking for women veterans to stand up or to come forward. And it's true that that when I thought about it, it's like, you know what, I have really been flying under the radar here. And I didn't want to be identified as a woman veteran. I kind of just got to a point in my life where I, I wiped everything out of my resume. I didn't talk about it unless it happened to come up. It It was you just kind of started to accept that, well, for, for starters, you know, when I got out of the military, the the disability thing didn't seem to matter. Um, if I mentioned that I was military, the next thing I knew um, was that I wasn't a viable candidate for a position for various reasons. Right. And, and it became very challenging for me. So the easiest thing for me to do was to just wipe it out of my resume wipe it out of my history, don't talk about it, become civilianized, you know, mm-hmm. and basically bury this, this, all this stuff that I had done while I was in the military, just bury it. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, um, I read this article, and, and then um, I was visiting with, um, I was visiting with the director at one of the colleges that that I um, had been teaching at, and uh, they, the colleges have this what they call Center of Excellence for Veteran Student Success, and I was visiting with her, and she mentioned to me that you know they really needed help, especially with women veterans in reaching other women veterans. It was like a little bug that was planted in my ear at just the right time. I was like, hmm. 
You know, I've always known that at some point I would return to the veteran community. I just didn't realize that perhaps this is the time that this needed to happen. So I started to do some research, and she actually gave me some resources to begin to investigate, and I called them, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you're not a post-9-11 veteran, so we're not interested. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not the post-9-11 veteran that we're not interested speech. We hear that. For our listeners um, who may not know this, that um, each of the eras of service time um, are earmarked by a certain number of years. And um, what has happened in the most recent um, service anyone who served after 9-11, they were all of these funds and all of these really great uh, programs and services that were stood up. At the same time, those programs and services are only available to veterans who served, and most times in combat, after 9-11, meaning they had to, after the the, the, uh, 9-11 happened, um, they had to have, signed up and went and served after that period of time. Anyone who served in the military before that, probably 80 to 90% of the financial resources are not available to them. So there's big organizations like Wounded Warrior and IAVA and um, there's a couple dozen other ones. Um, If you didn't serve during that time frame, post 9-11, all of that, those millions and millions of dollars that go to injured veterans, it goes to injured veterans who were in combat, who were serving during that, after that time. And so women veterans specifically uh, very rarely meet the guidelines for, the, for, those, for those opportunities and for sure not Gulf War-era veterans, Vietnam-era veterans, World War II <laughs> veterans. Mm-hmm. We're not even, you know, Gulf War, we're not even on the radar. We, you know, World War II women are passing away more rapidly than, you you know, we'd like to discuss. And then our Mm -hmm. Vietnam-era veteran, our Vietnam women veteran, because they weren't just era, they served in Vietnam, and they were not nurses. Um, They are in their late 60s, early 70s, mid-70s. So we've got, you know, a lot of those opportunities uh, to be supported, um, especially even WVSJ, because we don't, we support all eras. A lot of those programs um, don't support us financially because they feel we don't have enough of their their uh, demographic in our in our group. Even though we do, we just we just don't exclude people out of out of our group. So I had to tell the listeners because some people will hear that and they're like, "Oh, well, I don't know." You know, they they they'll just glaze over it. They won't even know that that's a significant barrier to women stepping forward. Um, mm-hmm. to get help because a lot of those programs just don't support at that level. So forgive me for interjecting, but I felt no. this, I have to explain this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You're listening to WVSJ, the Women Veteran Social Justice Network. Well, and, and another important thing to understand, too, is that by tradition, usually when people get out of the military, they don't stay in touch. There's mm-hmm. there's not any real networks for people to stay in touch. And unfortunately, that's one of the worst things that you can do 
as a veteran because the next thing you know is that you find yourself isolated because other people don't know, they don't care, they return to their hometown, they don't they don't understand what you went through as a veteran. And people think, well, you have to be a combat veteran in order to be recognized as a true hero. And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting concept. You know, uh, they talk about how that women veterans are traditionally considered um, the invisible soldier. And so I was having a discussion with our mutual friend about this, and I said, hmm, well, that's interesting. I guess that means that those gurneys just move themselves, and and I guess those needles just somehow landed in your arms so they could give you that pain medicine you needed. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, that important communication that, right. um, that you needed to send off somewhere, it just got there magically because, Man, right. no one of these guys suffer from PTSD. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> they must have been imagining these things. So, right. And, no, and, and, you and know, pay, their payroll got taken care of because exactly. someone, you know, how did that happen? You know, so, yeah. <laughs> Go on and continue telling us about uh, about those challenges with uh, people perceiving uh, women to have served or not to have served in some in some particular way. What's happening is that that people don't see women as individuals who truly served within the military. If you weren't a combat soldier, if you weren't um, a uh, you know special forces or something along those lines, well then you didn't truly hold. Um, you're not a true hero. Or if you weren't shot at, or the truth be told is that I don't know what the actual statistics are of those individuals or those soldiers who served in actual combat, but I do believe that a better majority of our military is serving in um, what we would call support roles. In other mm-hmm. words, what is in, you know, people talk about how incredibly complex that the system is. Well, it is. It takes a lot of wheels turning to pull off some of the missions that we do. And I have to tell you, I'm very proud of America because of what we do. And, in the, you know, there's a lot of really great men and women who are in the military. And I think it's important to understand that we have to be working together. Right. And if we're, if we're not working together, then we're not doing a good job of, of um, making our, our of, of completing our mission. We need to know that the person that we're standing to has your six, as they would say. And and so if, if you have to stand next to that person and question that person's integrity or question that person's character, you know, that becomes a real, that becomes um, a, a problem because it's, it, it's a demonstration of a weakness when we should be standing together in solidarity and unity. Yes. And, uh, and so... Um, I think that when um, when it comes to the the civilian side or people who have not served, and I really want to say to them at times, you really just don't understand unless you've been there. And, um, you know, I don't want to be ugly about it, mm-hmm. but there's times that I want to say, unless you've been there, you really have no room to talk. <laughs> you, you, I know what you're you saying, yeah. You didn't go through the training. You don't understand the training that's involved. And, and, you know, I could go on to, into a whole lot of other 
subjects about, you know, just the, the general respect about the things that happen between the politics of the games that seem to be played through the Veterans Administration. You know, I hear this over and over again, well, the VA system is a very complex system. And it's like, yeah, okay, I understand that, but that's an excuse. <laughs> that's an excuse not to do the job that needs to be done. And so um, from that perspective, you know, kind of getting back to where I've been, where I'm, you know, seeing myself as being involved. And my husband and I both served um, in South Korea. And it wasn't until about um, two years ago that we discovered that one of the gentlemen we served with was um, was killed as part of, um, it was part of the movie Lone Survivor. The end credits um, revealed to us a name that we both recognized immediately, and we both just flew out of our chairs when we saw it because we had no idea that he he had he was on that um, Chinook that was shot down um, as portrayed in that movie, and you know factual it actually did take place. And from that perspective, you know when when 9/11 happened, it really caused a lot of us pre-9-11 veterans to consider, you know, how how can we best be involved in serving our country through this because we know that we know what's going to happen. We know that we're going to war. We know that, that we're going to have to, you know, be on board to support these soldiers who are going. And these are brother and sister warriors that we love and care for very much. In In that perspective, you know, I really – wanted to, I really started searching for ways to to be involved. And, um, you know, at that particular time, you know, we, we had one child. We were um, get, getting ready to have another child. I actually found out that I was pregnant with my second child um, right before um, the first planes hit the, the towers. And, uh, and so, and I was having kind of a rough pregnancy as was, um, so it, it certainly didn't help matter of any. I think I was not only traumatized by what I saw in the news, but, you know, my pregnancy was very difficult as well. And, um, you know, I just really threw myself into, you know, realizing that my purpose at that time and my mission was to take care of my family, keep them together, raise those kiddos up. And then I knew that when, as they got older and, and they were going to be making decisions about whether they wanted to go into the military or not, and so uh, I wanted to be able to support them with whatever decisions that they would make later on. And I knew that my time would come around to where I would be able to come back in um, and be more of a veteran support. And so what happened was, after this organization turned me down as far as, um, I'm sorry, but um, we, and I, I said, you don't even want me as a volunteer? Well, no, I'm sorry. I really don't <laughs> think you can help other post or help other 9-11 veterans. And I'm like, are right. you kidding me? Right. And so, <laughs> so at this point, I'm, I'm, you know, fit to be tied. And I started doing some research and I got on my LinkedIn profile and I started researching. And this one profile came up for um, a gentleman named Carl Monger. And I said, huh. And, and as I was looking at his profile, I realized that we had some common connections as far as where, where I had lived, 
my husband and I have lived in uh, Kansas for 16 years, and we had some common connections, or at least uh, we had, you know, um, some background that appeared to be the same. So I picked up the phone and I um, I, I called um, this organization called Gallant Few. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gallant Few has been in existence for 10 years. And their, you know, their subtitle is a Revolutionary Veteran Support Network. And mm-hmm. so I called, and Carl and I had a very long conversation on the phone. Oh. And <laughs> very okay. long conversation. Yes, and he's a veteran. Yeah. And um, uh, I've learned so much more about him since. I mean, I've read his book and um, called Common Sense Transition. And... Um, really just learned about what the organization is, what they do. They actually have a number of different projects that they support. And one of those projects is called LAM Project. And mm-hmm. LAM stands for Women with a Mission. So what happened was, um, and I wasn't 100% sure how involved that I was going to get with this organization because um, I was going through changes, I was I was still applying for full time work, uh, and and things just haven't haven't gone as well as I had hoped that they would at this point. So I've become much more vested in this organization now in helping them and working with Land Project and the director, her name is uh, Daphne Bai, and she it was her vision to start this program, uh, this project. What had happened with her, you know, she has a true heart and vision for helping women veterans. She had an experience when she was in the military, known as uh, military sexual trauma, MST. And it was, um, for her, she really felt called to be in a position where she could um, better support and help women who are going through these types of experiences. And along with that, of course, other challenges that women veterans are faced with, such as homelessness, um, underemployment, uh, child care, education, um, being isolated, and, of course, you know, the number one um, thing with um, women veterans is that uh, they are identified more so as being the highest suicide rate among all women veterans, or among all veterans who have served, and and which is really what captured my attention was right. What is the what is the lead? You know, the there's there's one common thread to to every suicide, and what we're finding is that the MST issue is usually the common link between. The, the the actual act of carrying out the um, the suicide, and so um, and, like I, you said, and homelessness, and mm-hmm. we're finding that many of the specifically women who've been injured um, with military sexual trauma, many many have traumatic brain injuries, many have poly trauma, um, some directly related to the injury of the sexual trauma and some secondary to the injury um, because of the retaliation. So they were put yes. in jobs that, you know, were, were you know, put put them in jeopardy physically 
and uh, switched, you know, because they reported, so it's moved them out of their, their primary role into some secondary or tertiary role that was completely out of their their scope of work, and, and they got injured. And in my case, that was my, my narrative, and it's the narrative of many other women. So I just wanted to, again, jump in and kind of give our listening audience uh, some context because for many of them, they this is all new conversation. Um, we've had three other podcasts that talked about military sexual trauma, but not at the at the um, nexus of where of where you're speaking at, of, about it from. So, so I apologize for inter- interjecting again. Uh, go ahead and continue, please, please. So no, it, absolutely, and and. And this is where we need to, what the, the director and I, um, we've had some heart-to-heart conversations. We shared our stories. Uh, I do have a, um, I've realized now that I had an MSC experience when I was in the military. I just didn't know it at the time because it was mm-hmm. never identified as such. Right. It, and, and so, but I, I mean, and that's a story for a completely different different time. I mean, I'm, I'm preparing some very real, um, experiences that, that I've had. And it was kind of like when it happened to me and when I finally transitioned out of the military, I threw it all in a little box in my brain and said, do not touch at all costs. It's locked up. And, and so um, but I have slowly started to address some of these memories that are that are coming back, and and I have to decide on a daily basis, you know, is, is this a memory that that I want to address today? And and so, you know, that the important thing that that I really want people to understand, or especially women veterans to understand, is that um, RAM Project is here to support women veterans, and we have to start to address the issue in order to get to the core of the problem. And I don't want to address it from the perspective of, you know, we're wagging our fingers in in other people's faces. I mean, it's happening not just with women. It's also happening with men. And while our program doesn't necessarily encapsulate the male aspect of it, we do realize that men are also going through these challenges as well. And, and um, you know, someone had said to me, well, it's just a dirty little secret. Everybody knows about it. And it's just like, yeah, well, it used to be that these dirty little secrets were the things that happened in families, but somehow it's all migrated into the military and other parts of, of um, the business world, civilian world. And if we don't stand up and start saying something about it, if we don't stand up and start doing something about it, it's not going to change. In fact, it seems that as we've raised awareness about it, well, it's just getting worse. And so, you know, one of the discussions that Daphne and I have had is how can we proactively engage this subject so that we can make true and effective changes that are really beneficial for everybody. Right. And it's it's not about, you know, it's not about the classic high school tattletale, you know. Um, so-and-so tattled on me and said, I did something wrong, so I'm going to retaliate against that person. I mean, come on, we're adults. We're And that was one of my things that when I went through it, I'm like, 
we're all adults here and why can't we address this and, you know, um, why can't it be that when a woman says, please stop, or a man says, please stop, why not mm-hmm. stop? It's why stopped, do you right? have to keep pushing the issue? I mean, I mean, and that, that's just a courtesy. I mean, the, I, I just, I'm baffled at how men and women have acted together in certain situations. Yeah, there was a, uh, a European uh, commercial, and they used tea as an example for consent. Uh, would you like a spot of tea? Yes, I'd like a spot of tea. Okay. Would you like a spot of tea an hour later? No, I don't want a spot of tea. And then, well, you had a spot of tea an hour ago. Why don't you want it now? You know, and it was just <laughs> like showing how consent, how important it is to, you know, have consensual, you know, relationships. And I'm always surprised by this, this, this notion that the military has, you know, the Joint Chiefs basically said that it is just part of serv- military service that you, that you could be injured in a sexual way by your, your brother or sister that, um, ser- that, that is serving. That that is part of service, and and they're on record congressionally saying that. And I, when I heard them say it, I was like, "Are you?" No one ever said to me in the recruiting office. And by the way, besides getting injured (laughs) in war and fighting against a, a common enemy, you have to pay attention to somebody. You know wanting to harass you sexually or, or molest you or rape you or injure you. That never came across in any of the recruiting materials, but they're the chiefs, the joint chiefs were saying, well, you know, it's just part of service. It's going to happen. We can't do anything about it. So I think our listening audience is shocked again because most people, when you say that, they think that you're joking or that you're just being snarky or sarcastic. But this is real stuff. This is this is the way that these things are happening in the military is real stuff, and it is impacting. It's a public health crisis because if, if suicide is a public health crisis, then it's definitely part of it. If homelessness is, is a public health crisis, then it is definitely part of it because it is one, for many the root cause to their homelessness and to the mental health conditions that they have. So we need to shift people's conversations beyond it being. You know, just this thing that happens in the military and the military is going to take care of it. But that this is a, it is, it is a national crisis. It is a yeah. health, a mental health crisis and it is a financial crisis because when you calculate the medical care and the treatment and all of these other things, it's costing our taxpayers lots of money to on the back end fix something that the military should be correcting on the front end. But again, we're we're talking we're 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 having a conversation with you. I could talk hours about these these topics because this is it's it's so important to me for us to have the appropriate resources for preventing sexual harassment MST and for supporting those who've experienced it. I think it's just any organization that is doing you know work in that area to support the community um, in in appropriate ways. I'm you know, I wanted to support and highlight. And so 
can you um, tell us what the websites and, and the social media so that we can make sure that our listening audience can um, get that information and, and reach out to you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the the uh, WAM project is um, whamproject.org.org, um, and then we have Facebook um, social media, mm-hmm. and the Facebook it, it's just a Facebook is um, um, WAM project one. If you looked it up, or you can just search it, you'll find it that way. And then we have Instagram account as well, and it's um, it's Wham Project underscore. So at Wham Project underscore, I'm, yeah, we'll get you to the Instagram account. Uh, the website we're we're in the process of updating our website to include language, so that women do understand. Um, we one of the unique things about Gallant View and um, Wham Project is that. We have a training program in place to help women. Uh, well, really, it's to help any veteran, and it's free to any veteran. Is uh, it's called um, the asthma check. So if they reach out to us, we're going to ask them to fill out what we call an asthma check, and it's a it's a quick survey to help us understand what they may be going through, and. Um, and then once they do that, then we talk to them about um, what we call birth coaching. It's a life coaching tool that we use to help um, women or the veteran to um, to better adapt to their situation, what they're what they're dealing with. We have. I'm going to be going through the training, hopefully here in the next month or so. So I'll be awesome. cert- a certified life coach as well. And, um, and and this is where we're starting. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the more financial provision that is made available, the better we will be able to reach um, those individuals who are really seeking help. Yes. You know, I think probably one of the most important or one of the most um, uh, important things to understand is that um, like the director, Daphne, said to me, um, she said that it's very difficult to rescue anyone who's not willing to participate in their own rescue. And I'm, yes. not, I'm not sure where she got that from. Uh, she said she ran across it and she shared it with me, and I think I might even have that on the website. Right. Is You know, you've got to be willing to participate in your rescue yeah, at what point are you going to take ownership and responsibility for your part? Yes, you were injured. Yes, you were hurt. Mm-hmm. But what can you do to um, to take responsibility for your part? And right. so, and, and I mean, that's even when I realized that part of my responsibility was the fact that that um, my experience went un- undocumented. Um, and so it was not documented uh, due to the the timing and 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 whatnot. I was I was threatened. And I can go into that later, but we'll have to come yeah. back to another podcast to maybe talk a yeah. little bit more about that because it's 
Um, we've, we've kind of wound down to our last few minutes and I apologize for interjecting again. We, um, to our listening audience, uh, you should know we have, Paul and I have had multiple conversations that have extended very far past our, our scheduled time. So yes. uh, there's a lot to cover, um, especially with all of the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you for um, coming on the podcast today. I definitely want you to leave us with any final words so that, um, like you, what you were going into, um, uh, you know, needing, if you're needing help and, you know, being a part of your own, you know, being, you know, active and engaged in your recovery. Yes. So, um, very true. I mean, women veterans need to understand that they are not alone, that there are other people out there who have had these experiences, and that we're here, we're a safe place for women veterans to connect with. We have resources. We're continuing to educate ourselves so that we can be um, a, a good resource for mm-hmm for other women veterans and you know we're we're here in this together we have to stand together and we have to you know you know we have to move beyond what we've been through and so that we can help prepare other women that other women who are considering going into the military my daughter is considering going in and i i want her to be fully prepared and equipped for what she's going to be faced with. We need to keep the focus on who the real enemy is when yeah. we're in the, when we're serving in the military. And, and we, we don't need to be looking towards each other as enemies. We need to be focused on who the real enemy is because that is how we, um, that is how we eliminate that threat. Well, thank you so much. And we want to thank our sponsors, Protect Our Defenders and the Jimmy Carter Presidential Museum for sponsoring this podcast. Um, we also want to thank AARP Georgia um, for uh, sponsoring this podcast as part of our 10th anniversary um, <clears throat> celebratory um, event that we had this year. They uh, they have been wonderful in making sure that we get the message of women veterans, their experiences, their empowerment, and their philanthropy out to the general population. So we definitely want to thank them. We also want to thank uh, Heroes Media Group for um, hosting this podcast for us so that we have a place to land, a, a, a significant community to broadcast to. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or any of the other platforms out there, we definitely appreciate you uh, joining us today. Um, this is Bridgette McCoy of Women Veterans Social Justice Network. I am appreciative of you being here. Look forward to you checking us out next week. And thank you so much to Paula for being here today and sharing uh, her, her story and sharing the work that she's doing in the community. Thank you all so much. God showed me here is where I'd be.